0: This week on the Crisis Conflict Emergency Management Podcast. Japan is, of course, a disaster prone country. I think, uh, for example, Japan experienced a big earthquake and a tsunami. So, as a responsibility of the people who are living in the disaster prone countries, uh, our responsibility is to tell our lessons, our experience to the world uh, who are not experienced so many times. So, for example, in uh, Indonesia, and uh, the Japanese people saw how the tsunami is, but, and uh, seven years later, the Japan, the north, northern part of Japan was hit by tsunami, but we, uh, just after seven years, we already forgot.
1: Welcome to the Crisis, Conflict, and Emergency Management podcast, where we have global conversations and share perspectives about international crisis, preparedness, and how to build more resilient societies. My name is Kyle, and I will be your host. And just how vulnerable are we to the changing international environment and what can we learn from this experience from AI to space warfare to community development and crisis communications. There's something here for everyone. Join us for unique international conversations and perspectives into the current threats, challenges and risks to our society. This podcast is brought to you by Capacity Building International and sponsored by the International Emergency Management Society. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Crisis, Conflict, and Emergency Management Podcast. My name is Kyle King, and I'm the founder and managing director of Capacity Build International, where we build more resilient societies through the use of emergency management and international programs. Which brings us to our guest today, Yosuke Okita, as we discuss international assistance, such as urban search and rescue teams, NCRAG, and the growing dependence of all nations on international assistance. Yosuke Akita has significant experience working in international disaster and emergency management, including emergency missions as a member of the JDR, the Japan Disaster Relief Team, and UNDEC, the UN Disaster Assessment and Coordination Team. And from 2003 to 2015, he had numerous international deployments to include the Algeria earthquake, Indonesia tsunami, Pakistan earthquake, Great East Japan earthquake, Christchurch, Typhoon Haiwan, and the Nepal earthquake in 2015. After working with JICA's offices in Japan, which is the Japan International Cooperation Agency, Indonesia and St. Lucia, from 2014 to 2017, he worked for OCHA in Geneva as the Asian Regional Focal Point for INSREG, which is the International Search and Rescue Advisory Group, and UNDAC itself. Since 2017, he's worked for Asian Secretariat, which is the Association of Southeast Asian nations as part of the Japan Asian integration fund management team and JICA's Indonesia office as a project formulation advisor for Asian partnership. Currently he's working in Hanoi, Vietnam as JICA's expert in charge of biodiversity and admin coordination in the sustainable natural resource management project phase two. Yosuke received an LLB from Kyoto university and an MA in international relations and masters of diplomacy from the Australian national university and a PhD in media and governance from Kyo university in Japan and has several publications discussing international search and rescue efforts, which leads us to our topic today, international assistance programs. Yosuke, welcome to the podcast and thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me for this podcast. So one of the papers that you published in 2021 is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you today Uh, because you were writing that due to globalization, More and more countries and organizations give assistance across state borders, with recipients not only limited to developing countries. So nations such as United States, New Zealand, Japan have also received international assistance in recent years. And you have mentioned in your paper that this can also be problematic. And I think that's something that we don't really talk about very much in two different ways. And I would love to hear your thoughts on this. First of all, larger nations, more developed nations, we don't really think about international assistance very much, but it does occur, right? So it does occur in Hurricane Katrina and others uh, sort of larger major international disasters in the United States. There is some international assistance that's provided. So first of all, we don't really think of it in terms, and so it doesn't become part of our planning all the time, especially at local levels. But you also have to take a different perspective of where you say it can also be a problem. Right. So it's also a problem in terms of receiving assistance. And I'd love to sort of just hear your thoughts on that. So let's first start with the planning of international assistance. What have you seen recently or in your past with all these different deployments you've had about the the way that international assistance has grown over the years?
0: OK, so thank you very much for kind introduction. And uh, it's about the, uh, the article you talked about, the article which I wrote about the reception of international assistance. Uh, at the time of the greatest Japan earthquake in 2011. And uh, as you kindly introduced, I was uh, part of the UNDAC team and I was in charge of the reception of the international assistance, focusing on uh, mainly the international urban search and rescue teams. But uh, at that time, as you can imagine, uh, at that time, 90% or I would say 99% of the damage was caused by tsunami. Not the earthquake. In case of tsunami, international urban search and rescue. Uh, usually, it takes more than 24 hours to arrive in the affected areas, cannot uh, contribute to life saving, and uh, they actually in the greatest Japan earthquake, uh, more than I think it's about 20 and nearly 1,000. User international urban search and rescue uh, workers were deployed to Japan, but uh, they could not contribute to any life saving activities and. Uh, they mainly uh, contributed to recovery, uh, especially the recovery of dead bodies and the debris activities. So the deployment itself was okay. Yes, uh, they contributed, and uh, as Japanese people, uh, as one of the affected people, uh, I was really encouraged by seeing so many teams uh, supporting to Japan. But uh, when we think about the, like the cost-effectiveness, of course, uh, the international other and rescue teams purpose is not only life-saving, of course they can contribute to recovery activities so that's fine but uh, if we really think about the cost-effectiveness of international user teams I really doubt if the international user teams in the time of tsunami was a good choice to to support affected country. maybe some other kind of uh, assistance such as cash contributions might be more helpful to the affected country and uh, I, I want to uh, introduce by example, at the time of the latest Japan earthquake and tsunami, some foreign teams, of, it might be NGOs or uh, I don't know if it's uh, governmental organizations, uh, that, so some foreign teams called to the local uh, government of the northern part of Japan, uh, which was an affected area, uh, directly if and asking if they need assistance in English, and uh, you can imagine how it is difficult them to deal with it, because not many Japanese people speak English, and they are already overstretched uh, to to deal with the disasters. And then there is an offer of international assistance in English, and uh, it was really difficult for them to to judge if they can deny that uh, offer because it's a cross-state border, so it's international and the diplomatic issues. So it's really annoying. So that's why I made this issue. Yep. So sometimes this too much of or unnecessary offer from international community can be a burden for the affected country especially the local government who has to deal with the disasters yeah.
1: that's interesting that you mentioned that I mean so we at CBI we teach the NATO crisis management disaster response course as part of our partnership with the the NATO CoE and just this week actually when we we're recording this podcast you know we were talking about international security assistance and we were talking about sort of the the mismatch of it's it's almost a, the goodwill of nations to want to be able to donate equipment to to want to be able to you know provide assistance during disasters and emergencies and things like that but often that assistance is is mismatched against the needs and the requirements of the nation and what you mentioned is, I want to talk about that for just a second, which is sort of the the local level receiving sort of phone calls from people and, and international organizations or NGOs basically saying like, you know, we have some, we'd like to help. We'd like to give some assistance. Here's what we can give. Do you want it or not? And that actually becomes a problem in terms of it's often a mismatch of needs and requirements. And then it's also an issue of, you're going sort of directly to the local level so that you can get involved from an international perspective and you can donate, you can contribute, you can take action. But at the same time, it's not really centralized through the government and fitting needs and requirements. And so how often do you see sort of that, that reach into the local level and sort of bypassing the, the national sort of focal points on these issues? Actually, the number of these
0: uh, mega scale or big scale disasters, are not so many, so in the past uh, as far as i know Japan received uh, the international assistance only twice it's the uh, Kobe earthquake in 1995 and uh, the Great East Japan earthquake but uh, in the scale of Kobe earthquake and the Great East Japan earthquake it's understandable because in Kobe more than 6000 people were killed and uh, in Great East Japan earthquake nearly 20000 people were killed but uh, now uh, i we talked about discussed about the globalization and the more and the more countries are ready for deployment of international assistance. And uh, I think it was in 2016 uh, in Kumamoto city. It's uh, not, not too large a city. As it was uh, hit by earthquake. And uh, I think at that time, about 20 or 30 people were killed uh, at the end. So it's not a big disaster. But even such scale of disaster, there was uh, an offer of assistance from the uh, foreign countries. And at that time, it Japan did not receive international assistance, but uh, now you asked how often, but uh, in this globalized world, I, I think there are many cases that uh, even if the scale of earthquake or disaster is not so big, other countries and international communities are happy to provide assistance.
1: So in terms of that type of assistance, we've seen this growing sort of initiative, I guess we could say, in terms of you know nations wanting to provide assistance, wanting to act more globally. Um, How would you assess sort of the ability of nations to absorb all that extra assistance these days?
0: In in terms of the capability to provide assistance, I think uh, many countries are now ready for providing it. And I want to show one example in ASEAN countries, because I worked for this uh, this area. And in the past, Indonesia, the countries such as Indonesia and the Philippines uh, were always receiving these international disaster assistance. But uh, now they are are happy to provide assistance because uh, they received this kind of assistance in the past. So the Indonesia Search and Rescue team, uh, which is called Basarnas, it now have uh, IEC classified teams, uh, which was classified in 2019. IEC stands for Instalag External Classification, uh, which started since 2005. And, uh, When we started the IEC, only developed countries such as the United States and some European countries and Japan were classified in this internal external classification. But uh, Indonesia is a typical example that uh, so-called developing countries, uh, but uh, their disaster flow and they usually receive international assistance, is now preparing for sending assistance. So that's why they went through the IEC internal external classification. So, I think the capability to provide assistance, many countries are now ready and happy to provide international assistance, including developing countries.
1: So, if we have more opportunities out there, if we have more opportunities to, um, or sources, I should say, if we have more sources of international assistance and nations are making this conscious step to be able to provide international assistance through mechanisms like Insurag and others, um, what is the sort of, what have you seen on the horizon in terms of planning factors for nations as they? You know, um, are are they effectively planning to be able to receive international assistance? Uh, Is that a growing sort of scale as well in terms of especially not considering developing nations, but considering the more developed nations, which generally have more internal resources and capabilities? Is that external assistance being integrated more into the developed nations planning process?
0: I think it's uh, really difficult, and uh, especially for Japan, we received, as I said, we received international search and rescue teams and other kind of assistance at the time of Kobe earthquake and the greatest Japan earthquake. And uh, just uh, let me show one example. In the Kobe earthquake, we received some international urban search and rescue teams with search dogs, and at that time, it ta- it took uh, a lot of time for the quarantine procedures for such dogs. For so uh, some teams uh, brought to uh, the search dogs, but it took uh, one or two days to enter the countries because the Japanese government at that time uh, took the same procedures as usual. But uh, in the at the time of the greatest Japan earthquake, which, which was about fifteen years later, uh, after the Kobe earthquake, the procedure itself, as uh, for the quarantine procedures for search dogs, uh, were very smooth, so they can smoothly enter the country. So, in terms of this kind of small procedures, as in the case of Japan, they are now preparing for it, they are ready. But uh, actually, Japan, the Japanese government is not integrating the international assistance into their disaster response plan. Uh, so they are not expecting to receive international assistance even now. So that's why it's really difficult. and. Uh, we can see a lot of review reports at the time of the greatest Japan earthquake, but the official review report done by the government always appreciates the receiving international assistance, so we really appreciate your assistance, but uh, they do not critically evaluate the assistance. But if we look at the uh, review report of the Hurricane Katrina by the U.S. and the Christchurch earthquake in New Zealand, uh, I think the uh, it's a good thing for the U.S. and New Zealand. They critically evaluate the international assistance. So, for example, if we look at the review report done by the government of New Zealand, uh, they clearly mentioned that they received the second batch of international user teams from Japan. But uh, it's like they don't use about mistake, but uh, they can be done by the New Zealand resources. So. In the response phase, we could receive the international assistance, but in the recovery phase, it should be done by the New Zealand resources. So if these countries really critically evaluate the international assistance, I think they can do better in the next time. But still, for some countries, Mm. I think they are not ready for receiving international assistance, especially the developed countries.
1: So what would it take from your experience? I know there's an entire program around sort of, especially with the UN system in terms of receiving international assistance, but what, is, what are some of the key considerations, especially for those listening that may ne- have never dealt with international assistance programs or receiving or, or even sending international aid or um, you know, search and rescue teams or anything else like that. What are some of the considerations that you have to think about when you're receiving these types of teams? I mean, you mentioned dogs in quarantine and certain policy issues that have to be changed or expedited because of, you know, the emergency status and, and what has to occur there. But what other the challenges must nations sort of deal with with this regard? Okay, uh, I think one of the
0: biggest challenges or the issue to be solved is that every country, including the developed countries, uh, needed to check the reception system of international assistance. So, for example, the countries such as the Philippines and Indonesia, they used to receive international disaster assistance. So they already have uh, the legal structure and uh, like the quarantine structure to receive international assistance. So they are very good at receiving assistance. But if we look at the like the, the US, New Zealand and the Japan, they didn't expect they are the reci- recipient country. So they didn't have the legal structure. They didn't prepare for the quarantine system, etc. So it was really difficult. So But in this globalized world and uh, due to the climate change, the scale of disasters, are becoming bigger and bigger. So every country will have a chance to to be the recipient of the international assistance. So they have to, every country, including developing, developed countries, should check how to receive international assistance. And as we discussed, they should integrate the, the international assistance as part of their response plan.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think that what we're starting to see across the horizon, and we'll talk about that next, but what we're starting to see across the horizon here if we're doing that sort of scanning is that we're seeing because of, you know, climate change, because of different security issues and needs that we're getting these transnational and, and cross-border sort of emergencies, disasters, and security situations that are leading to more regional approaches as well as, you know, international assistance programs having to be designed and incorporated as part of our national response frameworks and planning as we as we look at these issues. I mean, it's even if I mean, if we take a case of looking at the current Ukraine conflict, it's it's not is even that the disaster or the incident has to occur within your own nation. You are also sort of impacted by what's happening in your neighbor countries. You know, the massive influx of of refugees from a, a large scale disaster could be significant and apply significant pressure on your own communities within your own nation, just because you simply border that. And, and that's where, you know, when we think in terms of, at least in my opinion anyway, right? So we, when we look at like in the United States, we say, well, you know, okay, we have states, there could be border state issues, of course, but you could look at like, for example, the Texas-Mexico border, migration issues, and sort of pressures being applied onto the Southern states within the United States as well. And so I think these pressures are sort of applied everywhere. and and in many different frames and and perspectives from disaster to climate change to sort of mass migration and everything else. And it's sort of in the future is reflecting this more complicated approach to responding to disasters. And and what I mean by that is that we can't really just be completely reliant upon our own internal resources while that's an excellent sort of starting point, we have to acknowledge and at least start to incorporate the idea of maybe we need additional assistance because it is an issue of complexity or size and just massive scale that we could use some rapid international assistance to help you know stabilize a certain situation, and then it's also the impact around you know our bordering nations and what's happening there as well. So I think we we do have to take this more holistic approach in terms of that. But based off your, the work that you're seeing and and the work that you're doing and sort of your deployments, what are you seeing in terms of the future of of sort of these larger scale disasters that might be occurring, and especially their impact on our, say, more global and connected societies? I think it's a difficult question,
0: but uh, for example, uh, now since 2020, we are living in the world of the COVID-19, and uh, I think in the future, sending and receiving international disaster assistance uh, will be more difficult. For example, uh, in, during the COVID-19 era, some countries do not want to receive International assistance from the countries uh, with uh, many COVID-19 cases, and uh, vice versa. Uh, some countries do not want to send uh, international assistance uh, to, to the countries with many COVID-19 cases. And uh, a- Another reason is that, for example, in the Nepal earthquake, uh, there were many international rescue teams deployed, but most of them uh, were stayed in Kathmandu city. But uh, more damage was caused in the mountainous areas in, uh, in Nepal, and uh, but international user teams could not reach these mountainous areas. So uh, what I want to highlight is, is that to strengthen the local capability to, to deal with disasters will really be much more important during the COVID-19 era. And as you mentioned in this the, the world with a lot of complex emergencies, because sometimes it will be more difficult to cross state borders in the emergency phases. And uh, it always will take more time to, to reach the affected area, so that's why uh, to strengthen uh, the local capability as first responders who are already in the affected area will be important.
1: You know that's a great point, right? And that's a that's a great point because when we talk about complex emergencies, and I'm just trying to frame my thoughts here, but when we think about complex emergencies, you know, we never talk about sort of layered crisis, right? So just because we had COVID doesn't mean there wasn't an earthquake, right? But what happened is in what I might call a layered sort of complex emergency, these layered different situations happening that's affecting each other, you know, so now you have a pandemic which is affecting international assistance, which is leading to a degraded response or a lesser response from the international community in terms of international assistance. Or maybe it's not less but it's longer it takes longer it's slower because of the pandemic situation so we have these layers of crisis maybe right um which make things even just more complicated and so that's an interesting point but it it comes back and and i'd like to to bring that into the the point that you made about building local capacity as almost it's almost as if that's a mitigation to having to need international assistance
0: yeah, yeah. I, I pointed out the strengthening local capabilities uh, because uh, that's also from my experience in Insarag. So uh, I introduced you about the example of the Insarag external classification for uh, Indonesian teams. So in the first Indonesia was always receiving international assistance, but now they are willing to provide international disaster assistance. So that's why they, are now, they went through the Insarag external classification process uh, to prepare for it. But uh, uh, one interesting point is that at first uh, they wanted to try strengthen one international team in, in, in Indonesia. But uh, these uh, members uh, strengthened or trained for Instalag uh, methodology is now become trainer for domestic local teams. So having one strong international teams uh, lead to uh, strengthening the local capabilities. So that's why I wanted to emphasize this point. So sometimes this international assistance, so Insarag studied from how to coordinate international assistance, how to strengthen international user teams, but now INSALOG external classification leads to strengthening local capabilities. And as we discussed, maybe during the COVID-19 or in the situation of the complex emergencies, it will be difficult for other countries to send international user teams immediately. But if uh, during the peacetime, before disasters happen, uh, through the InstaLag methodologies, InstaLag external classification, international user teams can support strengthening global capabilities. I think it will lead to saving more lives, even if we cannot send international user teams.
1: Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's going to be an important theme in the future, at least in my opinion, because what well, we're starting to see, I think more and more, what has happened with the global crisis in the last few years, is that we're seeing the strength and the resiliency of local communities being the key factor to stabilize and, and sort of, you know, mitigate or prevent any sort of real disasters and, and events from occurring, at least the, the damage from these and, and the effects from these sort of disasters and natural disasters. And so what I what I see is as we start emphasizing more and more local capacities and sort of the resilience of local communities to be able to mitigate, prevent, respond, and recover from these types of incidents, what I see is that it's it's moving from this global perspective down to a more local perspective because as long as you can sort of withstand that, you can use the word resilience or you can use anti fragile, whatever you want to use. But you know, as long as the local communities are strengthened and the capacity is there to deal with these issues, then that is meaning less of an impact globally. And I think there's and it's it's coming out in terms of many different things. It's we're now we're talking about supply chain resilience. We're talking about not only response mechanisms. But more emphasis and money going into resilience and sustainable development, like is what you're, I believe, you're currently working on, and so and sustainable natural resources. Is, so, can we talk about that a little bit in terms of what you're working on now and some of the the, the portfolio and topics that you're dealing with? Okay. Yeah.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, currently, I'm working for the sustainable natural resource management project, and. Uh, uh, the main purpose is uh, to, to create or to develop the sustainable forest management in Vietnam. And uh, uh, as you can imagine, to have the strong forest, uh, of course, leads to preventing, preventing the floods, flash floods. So it leads to preventing disasters. So I'm, I think I'm still working for disaster management.
1: Yeah. And so in Vietnam, they're looking at that from the perspective of uh, mitigation, right? So forest management to mitigate future floods and other natural disasters. Yeah. And so what are some of the, the key issues that you're seeing from that sort of region in terms of trying to manage these things?
0: Since uh, I have worked uh, with the ASEAN Secretariat in the last five years, I, I think this region is a very uh, good example in terms of regional cooperation of disaster management. And uh, I think some of you, uh, the listeners are aware of the AHA Center, or ASEAN Coordinating Center for Humanitarian Assistance in Dis- on Disaster Management. Which was established in two thousand and eleven. So the function of the AHA center is very similar to the UN OCHA and the, uh, the UND, They have a the very similar system of ERAT emergency rapid assessment team. I think ERAT team uh, is very similar function of the UNDAC team. So in the past, this region, of course, uh, need, needed to receive international assistance from the outside of the ASEAN region. But now they are trying to do it by themselves. So. They have the ERAT team. So if there is a big disaster, they deploy the ERAT team, conduct assessment, and issue the AHA Center situation report. And uh, these teams have been established, the Joint Operations Coordination Center or something, uh, which is a very similar function of of OSOC. And uh, I think uh, I want to introduce one word from the former Executive Director of the AHA Center, uh, Mr. Said Faisal, so he in the past uh, said this kind of things. so the ASEAN region uh, will prioritize the international assistance uh, from the friends instead of strangers so for them, friends means the ASEAN member states so not only diplomatic relationships uh, but uh, they conduct joint training during the peacetime, so they know each other so disaster managers, emergency managers of ASEAN member states know each other, so if so once disasters happen their coordination should be much smoother. So, of course, ANDAC EU has a very good system, very good human resources, so they can coordinate the disaster situation very well. But, uh, of course, they are sometimes strangers of the ASEAN member states because they have never conducted the joint training. But now the ASEAN region is trying to do it by their region. So I I think this is a good example uh, of the regional cooperation. Of, of this uh, region, ASEAN.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a great example. If we if we come back to the NCRAG piece, and then we look at the search and rescue teams again. So if they're taking this regional approach and they're creating sort of this regional capability, you know, and, and as we talked about, you know, you develop a one really international professional team, then you build local capacities to be able to respond accordingly at, at a local level. Then you have this national team, then you have this regional approach to, to response. What does that mean for the future of like, the, the more international UN interag system with all these international teams? Do you see that they're going to be called out less frequently because nations are going to more regional programs and, and cooperation as well as building local capacity?
0: Yeah, actually, that's my expectation. So in the future, the deployment of international user teams uh, should decrease because each country... It can build their local capital. Uh, some countries can deal with the disasters within their countries by themselves. And uh, even if they cannot deal with it by themselves, now uh, the regional teams can support it. So if there is a big earthquake in Indonesia, they don't have to request the support from the European countries or the United States, which is very far. But instead, if there are enough number of Instalag external classified teams in the ASEAN region, uh, the Indonesia, can request these tips only from their region. So if we look at the number of IEC classified teams uh, as of now, probably more than 70% uh, of IC classified teams are in Europe. But uh, uh, I'm from Asia and Asia is one of the most disaster aspect from countries. And in my opinion, more IEC classified tips should be in Asia so that the, the international user teams from the region can support this region. So uh, that's my expectation. I I think I agree with you. And uh, so in the future, there should be no international, but uh, at first we can seek the regional support and then international support, but uh, the frequency of requesting international support should decrease.
1: Yeah. I think that's, you know, part of the work that we do is is in the international space and we go visit different countries and we hold you know, different working groups and things like that. And that's, that's really something that we're seeing as well is really the emphasis on going to regional partners because it's closer, it's cheaper, there's a common sort of understanding uh, and oftentimes language helps <laughs> tremendously, right? Um, and so that's there's a there's a real emphasis I, th- I think I've seen in, in the last say five years to really go more focused on a, a regional response mechanism as opposed to these larger complex international assistance mechanisms. If we, if we talk about the international assistance piece for a second, and and because you also wrote in, I think it was in your paper that you were also saying that sort of releasing of timely and accurate information, even in terms of English language, right? If that's the language that the, the assistance is being offered in, it is critically important to be able to manage international assistance. So, and we talked previously about how sort of, you know, some organizations might reach out to a local level, but be challenged by, you know, language issues and things like that. So how how important is it to have that centralized flow of information during an international disaster to these international assistance organizations like OCHA, like others, maybe even other nation states, and, and being able to try and coordinate that assistance?
0: Okay, I, I want to introduce the example of Japan. So firstly, the at the time of the 1995 Kobe earthquake, by, by this aspect, nearly six, more than 6,000 people were killed. So it was a really big earthquake. And uh, at that time, Japan, of course, did not have a system to release the information in English. So that's why the international community, especially the European countries and uh, the United States and some other countries, has to, had to rely on the information from the international media, such as CNN and the BBC. And, of course, their focus is uh, both to Damaged areas, so they shooted the uh, crops, building, and uh, the international community uh, will see that. Oh, in, in Kobe, the situation is uh, really bad. But uh, at the same time, the of course, the Japan is very disaster prone country, and so we are very prepared. So the Japanese government, including the local government, uh, provided uh, much assistance, yeah. and. Uh, Actually, there was no need for requesting international assistance. But uh, the BBC, CNN, and the other international media released uh, the footage that uh, there is no rescue workers in this site, something like that. But uh, the problem it's, was not the rescue resources itself. The problem was the transportation from other cities such as Nagoya, Osaka, and uh, Tokyo to Kobe city. So. That's why there was no need to request international assistance. So that's the one. If the Japanese government and the local government can release that information, the problem is not the resource itself. We have the resource, but the problem is the transportation. It's blocked due, due to the damage. Probably the international community did not send international assistance. and. Uh, at the time of the greatest Japan earthquake, yes, the situation was almost the same, but uh, the one difference was that the Japanese government requested the UNDAQ team. And UNDAQ team, uh, at that time, uh, I was part of the, that team uh, focused on releasing the information in English. So uh, every morning I bought the Japanese newspapers and we translated it into English and uh, the, the other members uh, drafted the OCHAR situation report. So we... As an UNDAC team, we release uh, information on damage, but at the same time, we, wrote, uh, we provided a lot of information on the Japanese government and the local government response. So there is enough rescue workers uh, and uh, enough medical support. And uh, at this stage, we don't need. Uh, international energy support, international support in terms of in-kind support etc. So that's why uh, I think it contributed to, to stopping to, to avoiding receive to receive uh, unnecessary international assistance. So, but without this le- releasing timely information, especially in English uh, for, for the international community, uh, the affected countries will need to receive unnecessary international assistance. And this unnecessary international assistance, as we discussed, can be a burden for the affected government and
1: the local government. I think that there's there's a point to be made here, because when we look at international assistance mechanisms, you're looking at sort of a, a UN standardized system, especially with Interreg, and there's a set amount of people and equipment and SOPs and procedures. So it's all very standardized. It's all very interoperable. And, and because of that, you can request that and generally get that assistance, let's say, fairly quickly. Now, the other side of that is exactly what you're talking about that we're currently seeing in some places like in Ukraine because of the the conflict, which is the fact that, you know, you don't need exactly that. Like you said, there's enough response capability, but we need transport capability. And when you make these general requests about transport capability, then you really don't get a very quick response because nations are not, or, and organizations are not prepared to send something that's not standardized. Right. And so it's like, okay, well then what is a transport capability? And then they have to go try and find something, you know, to, to donate or to deliver as a transport capability. And then it's all sorts of questions about standardization and sort of the ability to send it and, and logistics and procurement. And so, that it's a very interesting sort of perspective on it because you know, all the standardized assistance that we've designed over the last 20 years, 30 years, however long it's been, is becoming, as I would dare say, less relevant, <laughs> right, in terms of specialized international assistance or specific international assistance. And so, we've seen some requests, for example, coming out of Ukraine that are very very specific and then we've seen them deny other things saying like we don't need this because we have plenty of this stuff which is a good thing right so it's a good thing to be seeing it's a good thing to have in place that nations are actually saying no thank you we don't need this there's too much already but what i think is going to happen i I think you made it go ahead yeah
0: very. Yeah, yeah, important point. And in terms of uh, that you mentioned, uh, specialized assistance, uh, I want to introduce one example from Indonesia. So as I said, uh, the countries such as the Philippines and Indonesia, they used to receive international assistance in the past. So they already have a good system to receive international assistance. And uh, at the time of the 2018 Slavish earthquake and tsunami in, in Indonesia, the Indonesian government, uh, at first, many international community offered international search and rescue teams, but uh, the Basarnas team, which is the international, uh, Indonesia's search and rescue team organization, uh, said no to international search and rescue teams. But uh, they said we needed the transportation, so they requested C one hundred and thirty Airplane to transport the, the relief goods from other cities to, to Peru, which is the centre of the city. So I think this is a good example of the specialised assistance. The international disaster assistance does not have to be rescue, medical, relief goods, but they can request transportation or as the Jap- Japanese government did, we can request coordination, the information management team.
1: Well, it just shows the value of information, right? And I think it shows the value of nations having to have a thorough understanding of, of sort of the assistance that they need and being able to communicate that in a timely and efficient way to to donors or international organizations or whatever the case is to be able to do that. I know that there's a lot of frustration with some nations in terms of like receiving requests and then having things duplicated or and then nations getting too much stuff. And so I, I think that that's where it, the nation plays that critical role in that whole component there. So, in in terms of looking at the future, so we sort of talked about this. Now we talked about this, and and I'm, I'm not sure of a great way to phrase it. I can't think of it right now. But in terms of, you know, this standardized packages of assistance, but the need to have, you know, of course, regional response is far better, and as far as building local capacity. And then the ability to to sort of maybe that standardized assistance is only going to need and be needed in sort of extreme cases or in nations which don't have the ability to develop their own local capacity. But what are we seeing in the, in the future here if we're if we're we sort of talked about a lot of things that were happening today and in, in the, with the nations and the international response? And we've talked about a little bit about what the future holds and sort of these layered ways of providing assistance and where we're going regionally. But what is what let's bring it back to the community level now like what what should communities be doing in order to be able to be more prepared especially in this aspect of assistance programs. Hmm. Since I
0: I'm originally from Japan, the, Japan is of course a disaster-prone country and uh, I think uh, for example Japan experienced a big earthquake and a tsunami. So so, as a responsibility of the people who are living in the disaster-prone countries, uh, our responsibility is to tell our lessons, our experience to the world, uh, who are not experienced so many times. So, for example, uh, in Indonesia, and uh, the Japanese people saw how the tsunami is, but, and uh, seven years later, the, Japan, the north, northern part of Japan was hit by tsunami, but we, uh, just after seven years, we already forgot. that message from Indonesia. Also, we are very disaster-prone countries. But if we really remember how the tsunami is, how we can evacuate from the tsunami, I think more lives uh, should be saved. So, and uh, like, I don't know, you are now in Germany or somewhere somewhere in Europe, less disaster-prone countries. But uh, as in the case of Haiti, uh, Haiti, uh, in in the past, was, was not uh, thought that they are disaster prone countries, but uh, suddenly there was a very big earthquake. So they don't know much about uh, the earthquake, how the earthquake is, uh, how they can evacuate from uh, earthquake and floods and other types of disasters. But if they learn from other countries' experience, I think more people will be more prepared and uh, we can save more lives. So now, we are living in the globalized world. So what we can do as part of the preparation is to share our lessons and experiences, especially from disaster-prone countries. So that's why the disaster-prone countries, such as Philippines, Indonesia, Japan, uh, we have a lot of responsibility on that.
1: I think one of the challenges in, in terms of building that type of preparedness culture, as you mentioned, is sort of the frequency of exposure. Right. And so unless you're exposed to these challenges, these disasters or these situations on a on a fairly reoccurring basis, you simply don't keep it fresh in your mind. I think our communities are, you know, we lose that very quickly and we focus on the next crisis or next scandal or next whatever is in social media. And so we don't necessarily have that culture of preparedness like I think that we should probably have. You, you mentioned that that's sort of a challenge in, in Japan as well. Is it largely the same, even though you have sort of, as you said, very disaster-prone sort of location geographically, and, and you still are challenged with the, the cultural cultural preparedness, I guess I would say?
0: Yeah, I think it's a very big challenge for all, even in Japan. And if you go to Kobe, uh, there was a big earthquake museum, and which is very nice museum to, to remember the experience. Of the disaster, the, at the time of Kobe earthquake, and if you go to the north northern part of Japan, we still have the like the, the remains, uh, like the like the ship, etc., uh, to to remember the the lessons experience of tsunami. But uh, even so, still it is really difficult to to remember uh, the experience knowledge of disasters. And uh, it's already more than near, nearly 12 years have passed since the when it is Japan earthquake and the tsunami. And uh, I, I think many people in Japan already becoming <laughs> forgot about uh, yeah memories of the tsunami. So if there is a big tsunami again in Japan, uh, probably n- not many people cannot uh, evacuate quickly. Yeah, but uh, Okay, uh, regarding the preparedness, uh, one good example of Japan is that uh, every year we had, in, in Japan, we had the evacuation exercise uh, from the earthquake, so that's uh, like the Memorial Day of the Kanto earthquake, 19- 1923, it was a big earthquake uh, in Tokyo area, and many people were killed. And uh, to remember, uh, that data stake every September, uh, usually the Japanese schools and uh, even companies uh, have the evacuation drill exercise. From school. so, for example, uh, in this year the drill is based on earthquake scenario, and the next year the drill is based on the tsunami scenario. It depends on the location of the schools, uh, company, etc. But uh, I think this is a very good uh, opportunity for us to to remember uh, the lessons from the big ask big ask and disasters, and how to to to, to check the evacuation routes, etc. Mm.
1: So, so when they do this this scenario, they run this exercise. Is that really an evacuation, or is it more just sort of based on the school a school evacuation or an office evacuation from the facility or the building, or did they actually do a like Evacuate certain amount of the city.
0: Uh, no, it's a, a like a school evacuation a company evacuation. So okay. they al- already know the scenario. So on this day, we will have this evacuation evacuation to, So we already know it, but uh, we just to check the evacuation route, how we gather and how we check to to make sure everyone is here. So they already know the scenario, but uh, still, I think sure. it, it is very yeah yeah a good opportunity for us.
1: Okay. No, that's interesting. I just I was curious if they were doing sort of more larger scale evacuations, uh, which can be very complicated, <laughs> but that, that'd be also very interesting. Okay, great. So, Yosuke, thank you very much uh, for joining us today and, and sort of sharing your experiences, especially in terms of international assistance. I think it's going to be very interesting next sort of five to 10 years as we see the emphasis on local capacity development, regional cooperation, and then maybe less standardized international assistance. Or we see that nations take more of a role in like as a key player in terms of information management and requests and and actually identifying specific things that they need uh, so that we can contain things locally and then respond internationally with specific requirements. So yeah, very much appreciate your time. If somebody wants to reach out to you and to contact you, how can they find you? What's the best way?
0: If you search my name by LinkedIn or ResearchGate, uh, if you put Yosuke Okita, I think you can find me easy.
1: Okay, great. And we'll also keep a, a link to your LinkedIn inside the show notes. And so anybody that's interested, they can take a look there as well. And once again, thanks a lot for joining us today. Okay, thank you very much. This podcast is brought to you in partnership between Capacity Building International and the International Emergency Management Society. You can join teams today at T-I-E-M-S info. That's T-I-E-M-S dot info. And also sign up for the International Emergency Management Newsletter by CBI at capacitybuildingint.com. Is there a topic you would like to hear about? Or are you a functional expert and want to be featured on our show? If so, reach out to us at info at and let us know. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.